How are we all doing this morning? Good? Fairly Midland? I had a youth pastor who would say that. He was from the South and didn't understand it, but I went with it. Fairly Midland. So, uh, missed you all last weekend. Um, in case you don't know, um, myself, along with uh, Steve Dawson and Dawson's dad, we did what was called, uh, for me at least, might be what you might call a bucket list that I didn't know was possible to be a bucket list. And that we went to the Hollywood Bowl last Sunday, a week ago today, and saw John Williams in concert. And now some of you probably don't know who John Williams is, but I guarantee you know his music because he scored probably the most iconic movie scores that you have ever heard. Scores like Indiana Jones and Star Wars and my favorite, Superman, uh, and all of that stuff. So over 10,000 plus people were just gathered and they were selling lightsabers for like 10 bucks a piece. And so when John Williams came out, um, all these thousands of lightsabers went on and it was just fantastic. He did three encores and he's 89 years old. So we knew we better go see this guy. He's been scoring for a long time. He has done every movie for Steven Spielberg except two of them. So um, it was just phenomenal, including he scored Schindler's List, which he did not play at this time, but um, just a powerful, powerful score. He did three encores, and finally we were just trying to get him to do a fourth, and he finally just came out and just said, just motion like that. 89 years old, this is his third night doing it, and last night, so I, I, give him a break, right? Go to bed, you know, kind of thing. But it was, it was fantastic. It was great to actually check off a bucket list item that I never thought could be a bucket list item. So um, it, was, it was fantastic. It was just fantastic. So um, I'm here this Sunday, but next Sunday I'm gone once again. Um, I'm going up to Northern California because I can't get enough, apparently, of California. Uh, we've got a couple of brethren churches up there. One of them is celebrating their 100 plus one birthday. And so they weren't able to do it last year because of COVID. They're doing it this year. And what is, it, it's just a ph phenomenal church. They're doing phenomenal things. One of their unique ministries is they have their, what's called a brethren brew. Yes, brethren brew. They bought a historic building in downtown Manteca and they actually brew beer and they host Bible studies and you drink beer. You're limited to two. That's it. Um, and they give the proceeds. It's homegrown. It's all this kind of stuff. Now, I'll be honest with you, um, uh, brothers and sisters, the churches in the West for the, for the Brethren Church, um, we don't fit the mold for our brothers and sisters back in the Midwest and Northeast at all. They look at us like we're some sort of hippies, if you will, quite frankly. And the Brethren Brew just plays into that image. And it causes some of our brothers and sisters out of the Northeast and Midwest uh, Brethren Churches some angst and some heartburn knowing that there is a ministry that does Jesus and beer. <laughs> but it's true. It's true. I don't like beer. I don't drink beer. But I'm sure that, you know, there, we're gonna, there's, you know, whatever opportunities, there's going to be a celebration one night at the brew house. So they have all this kind of stuff. And they give the proceeds, by the way, a good chunk of the proceeds away to area ministries and area organizations that are doing some phenomenal things in Manteca. So... Um, that's where I'll be next Sunday. And then after that, um, I'll be back for a while. So I'll be here. So just hang with me. It's just one of those things. So, um, but I'm grateful for our pastors, other pastors, Wheezy and for Eric, who uh, uh, also preach regularly. And if you have not heard Pastor Eric's message from last week as he concluded the book of Jonah, please do so. Uh, great message as well. And so um, I want to uh, do a couple of things this morning as we get into today's passage, and we're going to be starting a new series this morning in the book of Revelation, and I'll flesh out more of what that's going to be like. But before I do that, I do want to spend a little bit more time in prayer this morning. Um, there are things I want to specifically pray for this morning. Obviously, we just came off the 20th anniversary of 9-11 yesterday, uh, a somber uh, moment in our country's history 
that I'm sure for many of us in this room, we know exactly where we were the day that that all took place. We know exactly what we were doing. I was, in, I was living in Toledo, Ohio, and I was taking down a children's deflate, one of those inflatable things, and I, we had just done this big celebration on Sunday, and I was taking that down when all of a sudden I had come into the office and discovered what had been taking place. And so um, it just changed our country's life and our world's life and our own individual lives um, forever. I mean, it's interesting trying to explain to children who were born either there or afterwards. You know, there was a time when you could actually go to the, the, the spot where people were getting off the plane and wait for them right there. And since 9-11, you could never do that ever again. Um, that you couldn't do those, that, that having taken off your shoes and all that kind of stuff, that never, never. It was just something we never thought about. And now that's just normal. It's just normal. So I'm going to pray for that. Uh, and I want to pray for a few other things as, as well this morning. So would you just join me again in prayer? So let's spend that time now. Jesus, it is great to be in your house and it's great to sing praises to you this morning. And what a reminder in singing those songs this morning, Jesus, of our reality right now, and also, Father, our reality in the future. Jesus, thank you that it is you who defines who we are. It is you who defines where we will be. It is you who determines our steps, even though we make our plans, Jesus. And I am grateful for you this morning, and I'm grateful, Jesus, so much to be in the house here to praise you and worship you with my brothers and sisters and to give you honor and praise, Jesus. And also, in addition to, just share with you things that are on our hearts this morning. No doubt that we have, Father, as you know, come off the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And Father, there are still scars, there is still heartache, there is still pain, there is still anguish associated with that tragic event. Father, and this morning we continue to pray for those who have been directly impacted Father, there are those who have lost parents that they never met. There are those who have lost spouses whom 20 years on are grieving that they have not been able to experience the life since then together. There are those, Father, who are still dealing with health ailments for rushing into those collapsed buildings. There is so much so much residual impact from that day. Father, we continue to pray for your healing on every single one of those lives. I'm grateful, Father, that you know them intimately. You know every single one of those people by name. So, Jesus, we ask for healing in their hearts and in their lives. Father, we continue to ask for healing in our country. Father, um, 20 years on, and yes, we are still dealing with stuff. We're still dealing with polarization in our country. We're still dealing with a pandemic in our country. We're still dealing with all sorts of differences and angst and pain and anguish. And Jesus, now more than ever, we need your healing. Now more than ever. So Father, heal us. Heal our land. Father, I pray this morning as we are gathered here and as we are about ready to learn and to receive whatever it is that you will share with us this morning, that um, whatever healing we may need, heal us. Heal us. It's in your name that we pray. 
And all of God's people said, Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you, let's turn to the book of Revelation. It is Revelation, not Revelations. Okay? Revelation. One revelation, not multiple, right? And it's really, really easy to find the book of Revelation. Here's how you find it. Go all the way to maps and then turn left. Okay? Go all the way to maps and just turn left. It is the last book of the Bible, and it is a doozy of a book to end the scriptures on, isn't it? Um, uh, just a show of hands, how many of you have ever been in a study or heard a sermon series on the book of Revelation? Right? Let me ask you this. How many of you have re- ever read the Left Behind series? Yeah. Um, all Revelation-ish. All Revelation stuff. Let me give you some good news today, if you consider this good news. We are not going to talk about the end times in the book of Revelation. That's not where we're headed to in this new series that we're starting. Rather, what we are going to be doing is talking about shifting things in our life that maybe we need to shift, we need to change, we may need to do differently. And our focus, as such, is really going to be on the seven messages that were given to the seven churches to whom the book of Revelation was written to. Let me just say this by way of just because I can While we might think the book of Revelation is incredibly confusing, I just want to assure you that to to the seven churches to whom the book of Revelation was written to, it was not confusing to them. It was not confusing to them. Now, that being set aside, hopefully the seven messages that we will be looking at starting today will not be confusing to us because thankfully, I think, and if it's done well, meaning hopefully I share well, um, that it will not be confusing as to what is being shared with these seven churches. And we are only going to look at today one message to one church today, okay? That's it. But it's an incredibly important message because as we're going to see in this book, these messages are spoken by Jesus Christ himself. In fact, if you have a Bible with you, whether it is in your lap, physical Bible, or on your phone, um, Chances are, if you've got the correct Bible, and I'm not talking the correct version, the King James, whatever, uh, not talking that, which by the way, for all my angst about that, do you know that the King James is still the number one translation used in the world for the Bible? Well, specifically for even in America. I mean, I can't say the world, but um, it is just a hugely impactful translation. But that's not what I'm talking about. If you have the correct version of the Bible, chances are your words will be written in red that we're going to read today. And those words written in red are whose words? Jesus' words, right? Jesus' words written in red. Today, the entire text that we're going to look at is all written in red. All written in red. If yours are not written in red, get a better Bible. No, I'm just... It's all right. It's all good. I'm just giving you a hard time. So this is what we're going to do is that we're going to be looking at this passage, and I want to start off with some opening words from a book by Pastor Mark Batterson in a book that he wrote called Wild Goose Chase, and he says these words, and it begins this way. I want to die the same way Wilson Bentley died. Wilson grew up on a farm in Jericho, Vermont, and as a young boy, he developed a fascination with snowflakes. Obsession might be a better word for it, Most people go indoors during snowstorms, not Wilson. He would run outside when the flakes started falling, catch them on black velvet, look at them under a microscope, and take photographs of them before they melted. His first 
photomicrograph of a snowflake was taken on January 15, 1885. Under the microscope, um, I found that snowflakes were miracles of beauty, and it seemed a shame that this beauty should not uh, be seen and appreciated by others. Every crystal was a masterpiece of design, and no one design was ever repeated. I realize for some of our brothers and sisters here today who grew up in southern Arizona, snow might be something of a foreign thing to you. Uh, but trust me, it, is, it, it can be absolutely beautiful. Um, when a snowflake melted, that design was forever lost. Just that much beauty was gone without leaving any record behind. The first known photographer of snowflakes, Wilson pursued his passion for more than 50 years. He amassed a collection of 5,381 photographs that was published in his magnus opus titled Snow Crystals. And then he died a fitting death, a death that symbolized and epitomized his own life. Wilson Snowflake Bentley, as he began to be called, contracted pneumonia while walking six miles through a severe snowstorm and died on December 23, 1931. And that is how I figured out how I want to die, the author writes. No, I don't want to die from pneumonia, but I do want to die doing what I love. I am determined to pursue God-ordained passions until the day I die. Life is too precious to settle for anything else. Amen? Snowflakes. A man dedicated 50 years of his life to photographing snowflakes. Now, I don't know about you, but that isn't something that really gets me excited. But for him, he was just absolutely obsessed with photographing snowflakes, looking at these beautiful, God-created flakes that were unique in everything. You know what I've got a better idea? Is photograph people, because people are also snowflakes. <laughs> not that they're cold and that sort of thing, and icky, no, not icky, <laughs> but rather so unique and you know when when we die when you die when i die there will be no one who looks like us ever again you sell yourself short think about that there is only one of you and you are unique you are a snowflake a man dedicated his life to photographing snowflakes because he was just unbelievably captivated by it, passionate by it. Do you know people who are just so passionate about what they are doing? They cannot do it enough. And, and people are passionate even about some of the most unusual things. Their bookseller magazine runs a competition to find the book with the oddest title of the year. Oddest title of the year. Listen to some of these titles. Competition rules stipulate that the work had to be of serious intent and nonfiction. One year, the winner was this. The title of the book was Highlights in the History of Concrete. <laughs> there is someone or someones who are fascinated with concrete. Look at some of the other titles here. Runners-up included The Illustrated History of Metal Lunchboxes and The Development of Brain and Behavior in the Chicken. <laughs> Special mention was given to Soviet bus stops and butchering livestock at home. <laughs> there are people who are passionate about this stuff. 
so passionate that they write about it, so passionate that they spend their lives dedicated to studying all this stuff. We know that there are people who are just so passionate about this. Here's the thing, being at this concert last week and watching John Williams, 89 years old, that man still writes music. He never stops. And when he got up there to conduct, and he's just conducting this beautiful, the L.A. Philharmonic Orchestra, and they're just doing, and by the way, there was not a, a single mistake that that orchestra made. It sounded real, like you were just watching the movie. It was unbelievable. But you could just see as he was conducting the absolute joy he had of just being up there. That's a man who has discovered what he wants to do with his life and has dedicated his life to writing music. To writing music. Just unbelievable. In fact, I was listening to, uh, we were listening to podcasts because we're nerdy this way. We were listening to a podcast on the way to John Williams' concert of another composer who composed the Lord of the Rings music. And he was talking about how he spent six months researching and understanding J.R.R. Tolkien's world and all of this stuff. And he began to compose. And he was composing so much music for this film and that they brought in hand trucks to cart the music out. And when the, music, and when the movie was done, it was done, and they had to say, okay, we're done with this, he couldn't stop. He was that passionate about it. That pa That's unbelievable. We know passion is so important. It's so crucial. It gives meaning to life. It excites us. It gives us a purpose that we can get up in the morning and go do what we believe we are passionate and called to do. And that is exciting. And we also know the opposite of it, is that if we aren't passionate, man, life can be difficult. The mathematician, philosopher, author, all-around Renaissance man, Blaise Pascal, says this. Nothing is so intolerable to man as being fully at rest without a passion, without business, without entertainment, and without care. What a horrible life that would be. How intolerable that life would be if there was no purpose to it, if there was no passion to it. So today, here's what we're going to be doing. The reality is, as followers of Jesus Christ, we, as his followers, ought to have passion. That we, as followers of Jesus Christ, hopefully know that, man, this is what Jesus has called me to do, and this is what I want to do. I am just passionate about this. I am just passionate about doing this, this kind of work. And it could be even the most, what, we might, what I might consider the most, you know, absolutely boring you know, insomnia and, you know, curing type of work out there. Uh, I'm grateful for, for example, the bookkeeper that we have that, that takes care of stuff at our church now. And, and, and it's fascinating that we have people like the treasurer and the bookkeeper and all these finance people that work with numbers, and it makes me just glaze over, right? But they love it. They love it. They absolutely love what they're doing when they're doing working with numbers and doing all that stuff. And God bless them. We need these people. These people are so passionate about that work and it's wonderful. And I'm in some ways jealous because sometimes I wish I could be just as passionate sometimes about what they're doing. And it just doesn't resonate with me. And that's okay. So here's the thing. 
is that as followers of Jesus, we know that we ought to be passionate, that we know that we have a purpose, that we know that we're here for a reason, that we know that Jesus Christ has given us something, a task, a ministry, whatever it is that we want to call it, to do. But here's the other reality that we also need to face, is that there are times when, believe it or not, our passion can begin to wane. That our passion can begin to kind of deflate. That we can move from being passionate to now being passive. That thing that once excited us may not excite us anymore. Or may not excite us as it once did. And here's the thing. When that takes place, what do we do? How do we shift back from being passive back to being full of passion? How do we make that shift? Well, today we're going to look at the scriptures and we're going to take a look at one specific way that we can move, that we can shift from being passive to being passionate. It's one way. It's not the only way. It may not apply to your specific situation, but it may apply to your specific situation because as we're going to look today, it is not only possible for Christians to lose their passion, it is also possible as a result of Christians losing their passion for the church to lose its passion. And here is my hope. If you find yourself today as kind of going through the motions, you're kind of passive, you're just kind of there's just really no excitement there for Jesus as there once was. There's, you know, you're just kind of, man, struggling. I want to just share two things with you today. Number one is this. You're not alone. You're not alone. You're not the only one, and you will never be the only one. There's plenty of company, and that's okay. It happens. And number two is, it doesn't have to remain that way. We can reclaim that passion. We really can. And we're going to take a look at one way in how we can reclaim that passion this morning. And there are two ways that we can do it. Two ways that we can shift from being passive to being full of passion. And one way is this. Remember where, when, and how you began to become passive. Let me say that again. Remember where, when, and how you began to become passive. Let's take a look at Revelation chapter 2. Here's the first verse. And the Apostle John is writing words that Jesus himself has given him. And so these are Jesus' words that he is speaking to this church in Ephesus. And this is what Jesus says. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write... The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your labor and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil people. And you have put those who call themselves apostles to the test and they are not and you have found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured on account of my name, and have not become weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. 
Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. Now, Jesus starts out and he says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, which maybe begs the question, what angel? Does that mean that every, there's an angel assigned to every church? Maybe. It also could mean written to the pastor of the church, which I kind of like. Don't call me Pastor Danny anymore, just call me angel. Right? A purely self-serving in that one, you know. Uh, it, it, it could be a variety. It, it, it doesn't, could be to the leadership. It could be to an actual... We don't know for sure. Jesus is speaking this word. But here's what's really important. He then says this, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold sta- gold, golden lampstands. Now, really interesting. Jesus is now speaking to the leadership or to the church, to the pastor or otherwise, or to the angel over that church. And then he says this, I'm the one who holds the seven stars in my right hand. The seven stars representing the seven churches to whom he is writing to here in Revelation, okay? As well as walks among the seven golden lampstands. Again, the seven churches. Which really is interesting because it says, in my opinion, two things. One is this. The seven stars in his right hand says that Jesus, in many, in many ways, is signifying his authority, okay? I have authority over the churches. And walking among the seven golden lampstands means that Jesus is present at every single one of those churches, which also, by the way, ought to give us some moment of pause as well as assurance, and it's this. One is, Jesus is the ultimate authority of this church, period. Not me, not the elders, not all of us, by the way, if you ever look at our leadership structure in the church here at Summit Ridge, it goes Jesus, then it goes congregation, okay, right? That's it, and then it goes to, uh, uh, you know, ministry board and deacons and elders and staff and all that kind of stuff. Uh, By the way, Jesus has the ultimate authority in this church, period. He is the ultimate authority. And number two is this, and by the way, stars, I love that word stars as he describes the churches, as though in some ways that we have this heavenly identity, if you will, with us. This heavenly, you know, unbelievable, up there with Jesus identity with us. And then he says the seven golden lampstands. In other words, Jesus is present with those churches just as he is present with us. He is walking among us here. And I love that word lampstands. Lampstands meaning the significance of being a witness, being a light in a world that does not yet know Jesus. That's how he addresses these churches. He has authority and he has presence among his churches. Let me just say this, brothers and sisters, it does not matter our size, it does not matter our location, it does not matter our denomination, it does not matter Every single church Jesus has authority over and every single church Jesus is present in. Think about that. Every single church Jesus is present in. And by the way, this church in Ephesus is incredibly important. A well-known church, certainly in Christian circles in that day. This church was planted by Paul himself who, as we would read in Acts 19, went to Ephesus, which, by the way, was home to this goddess Artemis, or goddess Diana, 
who was a fertility goddess or goddess of the hunt as well. Her main temple was there in which people from all over the Roman Empire would come and worship her there. Paul ministered in Acts 19. He starts performing miracles. People start leaving and coming to know Jesus. And on top of that, they start burning books that they use to worship gods that were, not false, that were not real gods, false gods rather, and they started burning those books. And as a result, there was a big brouhaha in the city, not by the priestesses, right? The women ruled the show there, right? Priestesses, right? But rather, that was not the issue. It was the merchants who had an issue with Paul doing what he was doing because these merchants really found a great way to make money and that they would make little Dianas that you could take home and put on your, on your fire mantle and say, oh, there she is right there. We can worship our little Diana, right? More like dirty Diana, Michael Jackson reference. Uh, anyways, um, yeah. And so um, it's just, they made a great business out of it. And because what Paul was doing, all of a sudden they were losing money. They grabbed, not Paul himself, but some of his followers and tried to put them on trial and caused this great ruckus in the city. But he planted this church. This church was incredibly important. And not only that, we know that from the book of Ephesus, Paul reveals to the church there God's great mysterious plan that has now been revealed through Jesus Christ. And that plan is this, to bring both Jews and Gentiles together as one under Jesus. That was God's glorious plan from the very beginning. And not only that, but the Apostle John who wrote Revelation, it is said by tradition <clears throat> that perhaps he and Jesus' mother Mary settled there after Jesus' ascension. So Ephesus is an incredibly important place and an incredibly important church. This church is known for its good deeds. In fact, Jesus even praises the deeds. I know your deeds, Jesus says, and your labor and perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil people. It's all about truth. It's all about making sure that those who call themselves apostles, that they would put them to the test to see if they are actually apostles. And if they were not, they would cast them out. And you have persevered and have endured on account of my name and have not become weary. Unbelievable. I mean, they have done some great, phenomenal things. And yet, Jesus says, you have left your first love. Now, here's a question. How does a church, and maybe even more than that, how does a Christian begin to lose their first love? Their first love, in this case, being Jesus. Their first love in actually loving Jesus. How does a Christian, or even a church, begin to become passive? about loving Jesus. How did that happen? Well, there's a, probably a variety of ways that that happens. Uh, some possible ways that they can probably happen is the fact that, um, that all of a sudden now a church just becomes tired. A church becomes lax. And that although they may know their doctrine so well and although they may know all the right beliefs so well, that all, all of a sudden now they, they just kind of look at outsiders as kind of not belonging here. And all they want to do is just keep those that are inside, inside, and that those that are outside, keep them outside. And they're weary of anyone who might come in, as Ephesus probably was, determining whether or not they are really desiring to know Jesus or whether or not they are here to cause trouble. And so, you know what? It's just better if we just don't have anybody else come in. They begin to shut down 
themselves to people outside the church. They might get distracted. They might have doubts. They have a lack of support. It is possible that Christians and churches can begin to lose their passion. If I were to say today, maybe one big thing that may have caused Christians and certainly churches to lose their passion, but more than that, Christians, I would say COVID. When we had to shut down and people all of a sudden were at home on Sunday mornings, um, wow, this is really nice. I can sleep in. I don't have to get here at 9.30 or 10 or 8.30 or whenever the services are. I can just simply stay at home and maybe I can catch it online. This is really nice and that I can just get my Jesus thing online and then that's it. I'm good to go kind of thing. And all of a sudden, maybe there are just some who just after a while got passionate about watching the services and participating and all of a sudden after a while they just stopped watching those as well. I think that's a big thing. There are so many Christians that have stopped going to church. In fact, in some churches, the average is about a third. About a third of Christians have not yet returned to their church, on average. Some are less, some are more, but around a third. For a variety of reasons, but one of the big ones is that, you know what? It's just really convenient. There are some churches, we're not there yet, and we may not be, there are some churches I know that have simply have said, you know what, we're not going to live stream the services anymore. We're not going to do that anymore. It's time to come back to church. It's time to once again re-engage. Because what happens is, is that people begin to develop new habits. Some of these habits, whether they realize it or not, begin to draw them out of the church. And as a result of drawing them out of the church, they can become to easily lose their passion for Jesus, or why they were doing what they were doing in the first place. It is just so many different ways as to how we can lose our passion for Ephesus. Most likely it was they were so doctrinally pure and so much about the truth and making sure that anyone who came into this church was here for the right reasons, that they began to possibly shut out everyone else. And in doing so, that they were so doctrinally pure that they were so poor in their love for Jesus. And it is really, really tough. So Jesus says this, remember where you fell. Remember where you went down. Now it's interesting that Greek word there for remember, it is almost always associated with prayer in the New Testament. And perhaps a big way for us to remember as Christians, or maybe as a church, or for Ephesus there, for them to remember that John or Jesus was calling them to do was, go, go to prayer. Ask me. Jesus revealed to me, where did I go wrong? Where did we begun, begin to also become passive? Pray. Ask Jesus to reveal that to you. That may be true for us as Christians, is to ask Jesus to reveal to us, where is it, Jesus, that I lost this passion that I once had for you? Where did it begin? Help me understand. Where did it start? And you might find that it is very difficult, that it may have just been a small little thing, and then it just began to just grow from there. But Jesus says this, remember where you 
fell. He tells the church in Ephesus, look back. Look at your history. Look at where things began to go off the rails that you began, in this case, possibly become so doctrinally pure that you were so poor in love. Where did this begin to happen? That's number one. Remember, if we want to shift from passiveness to passion, we need to do some soul searching. We need to ask ourselves and ask Jesus specifically, maybe through prayer, and to say, Jesus, reveal to me, where is it that I began to go off? Where is it that I began to just kind of not all of a sudden begin to lose this passion for you? Where did it start? That's number one. Number two is this. Once you do that, then you can do number two, and it's this. Return to the place you discovered your passion. Return to the place where you discovered your passion. Jesus says this, and this is how Jesus recommends this. And repent and do the deeds you did at first. Repent and do the deeds you did at first. Repent meaning change your mind, change your direction, go, you know, go back and do those things that you once did when you were so passionate about Jesus Christ. Go back and do those things. Go back and do those things once again. Whatever those things were. Maybe as a Christian, you started out and you were just, man, you had that quiet time. Man, you just loved reading scripture. You just loved praying. You loved that time of worship. And now all of a sudden, things came into your life. You got married. That's not a reason. Um, you, you began to have kids. Oh, you got a dog. Um, you know, you, 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 your work hours began to increase. Um, all of these things began to come in. And now all of a sudden you found yourself little by little having to rush through your times that you spend with Jesus Christ. All of a sudden now it's becoming shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and less and less and less and less until all of a sudden now you're barely doing it at all. Maybe that's the point at which your passion for Jesus began to wane. Maybe there was a time when you began to follow Jesus that you were just so passionate about helping people, about serving people, about wanting to just be available to help in any way you can. And then slowly but surely, things began to cloud those things out or crowd them out for other things. Maybe more what you were more maybe more involved in is that you were just taking one class after another, going to one Bible study after another, doing one thing after another. And before you knew it, you were so full of knowledge that you didn't realize that what difference does it make if it doesn't help you be a better Christian to love others as you love Jesus Christ? Who knows? Who knows? Whatever it is. Jesus says, turn around and go back to those things that you first did when you loved me. Do those things. And chances are, you'll regain your passion. You'll regain your passion. And that's a beautiful thing. Let me just say this, brothers and sisters. Um, I, I, am, I am through the thick of this right now in my own life. Uh, you know, there are times waning up and down. When I first came to know Jesus, 
I was so passionate about Jesus, it was embarrassing. I wore Christian t-shirts all the time, even those that I didn't even understand what I was wearing. I still have one in my office, by the way, that says, let's put the, you ever see those ones, the Christmas t-shirts? Let's put Christ back into Xmas. 